Milt was 19 years old, uh, younger than a lot of you, and he had some big decisions to make as he grew up. He had to decide whether he was going to uh, live at home with mom and dad or whether he was going to move out and launch out on his own. He decided at 19 to launch out on his own. Uh, so then he had another big decision as he got to the edge of town. He had to decide whether he was going to turn left and, and go 180 kilometers to New York City or whether he was going to turn right and go 35 kilometers to Springfield, Massachusetts. He decided to turn right and go to Springfield. As he got into Springfield, he had another big choice to make in his life. What was he going to do with his life? What, what kind of career was he going to have? And so he went around and he sold himself as a draftsman. He, he really enjoyed drawing and artistry. And he went to a rail car, a manufacturing company, and he said, I'm a draftsman. Would you hire me? We don't need any. Would you hire me? Would you hire me? They finally hired him. And he had a fantastic year making money and doing what he loved to do. And then the rail car company went bankrupt. And then he had a, another choice to make. Does he go home back to mom and dad? Or does he try and find another job? Or... Or what's he going to do? And he decides to do something really risky. He decides to rent a little shop and open up his own draftsman and solicitor business. And for the next two years, he, he looked every day at his business and said, I made a wrong choice. I, I made a, a disastrous decision because I can barely make ends meet. And then out of nowhere, some Egyptian officials came and they reopened uh, the rail car company and they, they came to to Milton, and they said, Milton, would you draw a special car for the monarch? And he drew the special car, and he designed it, and, and uh, he got these awards, and he got a bonus, and, and they gave him a lithograph. Uh, this is back in the 1800s. It was like a, a really nice picture of his rail car that he made. He looked at the lithograph and said, this is the future of printing. It was kind of like a modern-day photocopier, and and so he said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my bonus money to buy myself a lithograph machine, and I'm going to go into business printing pictures. And he, he began to print pictures, and he printed uh, a really special picture, and he began getting rich off of this picture. It was a picture of a clean-shaven President Abraham Lincoln. And everybody was wanting it because this guy had just become the president, and this was like the going. This, in fact, is the lithograph picture uh, that he printed. However, it wasn't very long before an 11-year-old girl wrote President Lincoln and said, I would suggest that you improve your looks by growing a beard. And he did. He grew a beard, and that beard put Milton and his fortunes and his future out of business. Nobody any, ever wanted any more of his, his clean-shaven prints. And now he was about to go bankrupt again. And he had to make a choice. He had to decide, what am I going to do now? Now that I'm going to go bankrupt, and I got this lithograph machine, and, and I got this business, and, and it was 1860. And he decided to make a very risky choice. He decided that he would begin to design and print a game. Now, you need to realize that in the 1860s, games at best were seen as a waste of time, and at worst were seen as a tool of the devil. Nobody wanted to play games. There was no such thing as family games. So his game, if he was going to design this game, it, it had to have redeeming value. It, it had to have something that was going to lift people up. And so he designed this game, and it was called the checkered game of life. And the checkered game of life, it was pretty simple. You started at infancy, and you had to make your way to happy old age. And if you did, you got 50 extra points, and you were probably going to win the game. And along the way, uh, along the way honesty led to happiness for five points. And perseverance led to success for another five points. And being industrious led to being wealthy for ten points. And, and parents loved this game. 
because it also reinforced that crime led to prison. Idleness led to disgrace. You had a choice whether you could go left or right all the time. You always had choices to make in this game of life. Gambling led to ruin and suicide got you kicked out of the game entirely. By the end of the year, Milton Bradley had sold 44,000 copies of the checkered game of life. A hundred years later, long after Milton Bradley was dead, the Milton Bradley Company recommissioned the game of life. And I want to ask you today, how many of you have ever played the game of life? Yeah, I mean, most of us have played the, the new game of life, this uh, new reconditioned, redesigned game. And if you played it, you know the objectives, don't you? Because they're written right on the back of the box. And the objectives are to make the right choice. Make the right choice. Do whatever it takes to retire in style with the most wealth at the end of the game. Now, Milton Bradley, I don't think he set out to be a social commentator or any sort of cultural philosopher, but he did a pretty stellar job of capturing and articulating what our world believes the game of life is all about. About retiring with a lot of money. Do whatever it takes to retire in style with a lot of money. Now, I used to not think anything of playing this game with my daughters. 20 years ago, we'd play this game, and it was just, it was just fun. We, we'd spin the spinner, and, and we'd play this game and see how many kids we could have in our car, and it was great. But as I re-looked at this game lately, I thought, you know what? There's some stuff that fundamentally bothers me and offends me about this game because it's so far from what real life is like. You see, in the game of life, you have two choices when you start out, either a career or college. And if you happen to, to go the career route, you only have nine careers to choose from. However, a little bit of research on the, on the uh, careerplanner.com tells us that today you have over 12,000 careers to choose from. Not nine. You've got 12,000 at least careers to choose from. In the game of life, if you do choose to go to college, you're guaranteed a better career with a better paycheck. Today you go to college and you are not guaranteed even a job let alone a good career with, with really good pay. The game of life, it was, it was this one track. There was, the track was all set out for you, and there were four prearranged stops that everybody who played the game had to stop at. You had to get a career choice. You had to get married. You, you had to buy a house, and then you had to sell the first house and, and move on and buy a second house. It's called the, the linear life course imperative. And you, you feel this all the time, don't you? When mom and dad come to you and say, hey, when are you going to get a real job with a real paycheck? You know, that's saying, hey, there's a stop you need to make, and that is a career. When, when you know, Aunt Sally says to you, hey, when are you going to settle down and get married? That's because it's a, there's this imperative in our culture that you have to get a job, you have to get married, and, and then grandpa, of course, comes and says, when are you going to give us great grandkids? Right? There's this life imperative. Somebody has written the script for you telling you of what stops you need to make. However, in real life, you have umpteen million choices, and yet this secret script seems to still be playing and pressuring on you, saying, hey, you got to get a career. you got to get married. you got to have kids. you got to get a house. you got to get a second house. But, you know, uh, another part of this game, in the game of life, that really kind of bugs me is that the end of the game is retirement. Now, shouldn't the end of the game be death? I mean, why is it retirement? Who says that at 55 or, or 60 or 65 that that's the end of your life? But that's how this game is set up. And you either go to millionaire acres or you go to some uh, old folks' home or whatever. But this becomes the objective of the game to get as much money as you can and to retire happy. 
But the biggest problem I have with the game of life is that there is no spot or square for cancer. There is no spot or square on this, on this game for I just got dumped. Nobody's going to land on this game with I'm addicted secretly to pornography or I was sexually molested as a child and I've told nobody. In the game of life, there's no square labeled lonely or insecure or confused or suffering with depression or stressed out or bored or feeling completely unappreciated or experimenting with drugs and secretly getting hooked on drugs. All those spaces in the real game of life are missing in this game of life. There's no space for got married, but, but it's over and I'm now divorced. There's no sp space for that in this game. Or I'm afraid that I may never have children. Or the, there's no space for I am afraid I might be having a child and I really am not ready for a child and I don't want a child. Or there's no space on this board for lost one or both of my parents. I'm having problems sleeping at night, and I'm exhausted every single day as I get up. I just finished my 13th interview for work, and nobody's calling me back. Or I feel so down, I think I might just exit the game altogether. Those spaces are entirely missing from this board. So the big question for us tonight is, if the objective for your future isn't to live a linear existence already set out for you, landing on four prearranged spaces and then retire rich. If that's not your future, and the path to your future isn't uh, you know, found in a mere 152 spaces on a little board, then how do you choose what future to move into? How do you know what should be your future with your one and only life? Well, tonight we're going to allow James, in the New Testament book of James, chapter 4, to instruct us and, and give us some understanding of this. James chapter 4, verse 13. Let's just read it. We're going to do some hardcore Bible study tonight. I hope you're okay with that. Here we go. Listen carefully. Those of you who make your plans and say, we are traveling to this city in the next few days. We'll stay there for one year while our business explodes and revenue is up. The reality is you have no idea where your life will take you tomorrow. You are like a mist that appears one moment and then vanishes another. It would be best to say, if it is the Lord's will and we live long enough, we hope to do this project or pursue that dream. But your current speech indicates an arrogance that, that does not acknowledge the one who controls the universe. And this kind of big talking is the epitome of evil. So if you know what is right, to live and to ignore it is sin, plain and Simple. James is saying, look it. There's a whole world out there who has read the back of the box and has come to the conclusion that they need to make their plans. They need to retire rich. They need to make as money, much money as they can. And, and that's what the game of life in the world is. And he says, listen, that's not how it really is. And the reason Milton Bradley's game of life got such success was because it was socially acceptable and it reinforced what everybody already knew, what everybody already wanted, which was to, to retire wealthy and comfortable. Do you realize that in your life, you're going to, if you're the same as most of us on this continent, you're going to work 100,000 paid hours. 12,508 hour shifts is what you're going to put in. You're going to work 100,000 paid hours 
hours and for what? The world would say, so that at the end of that, I can retire in Florida or I can retire in Phoenix or I can retire somewhere warm and I can have lots of money and I can just enjoy, enjoy what I worked off of. And James says, he says, listen, that's how the world plays the game, but let me dial you into what reality is because that is not reality. And he begins to, to give us some real-life dynamics of how life really works, and this is what he says. First of all, he says this. He talks about the complexity of life. He says the reality is you have no idea where your life is going to take you tomorrow. You know, I used to always hate the phrase when I was your age. Right? When I was your age, I used to hate the phrase when somebody would say to me, when I was your age. So, so I understand this is going to bug you right now when I'm going to say, hey, listen, when I was your age. But I want you to bear with me for a minute, okay? Because there's something fascinating I'm finding at 53 years old now. I get to look back over two and three and four decades of life that I have lived, that I've really been there, and I begin to see some trends. I begin to see some patterns that you're not seeing because you haven't been there. One day you're going to get there, but you're not there yet. So you, don't, you just got to listen to us old people say, when I was your age. But when I was your age, I want to show you a picture of what life looked like for me. That's what life looked like for me in the driver's seat of my life. That's a, a, a steering wheel from a Peugeot a sports car. And if you look at it, it's, uh, it's pretty logical. It's pretty standard. It's pretty simple. It's got a few functions. It's not overly complicated. As I look back to when I was your age, that's what life looked like. But as best I can tell, what life looks like now from where you're sitting is this. That is also a steering wheel from a Peugeot Formula One sports car. And that steering wheel has 35 knobs or switches or functions. It's all surrounding a screen that has 100 pages of data. And I did some quick math, you know, and behind that steering wheel, there's a couple of paddles that the, that the driver drives, and he shifts 4,000 times a race. And as I did a little bit of math, I, I realized that this driver has 230,000 configurations of switches that they need to be able to switch in just like a split second. And when I compare what life was like for me when I was your age 30, 35 years ago, it was so simple compared to what you're facing today. What you're facing today is so incredibly complex. I mean, it is really, really complex. In fact, uh, there are studies from the American Psychological Association, the American College of Health Association. They both have come up with studies that conclude this. Millennials, that's you guys, may in fact be the most stressed out group in history. In history, you guys are the most stressed out because you have so many buttons and configurations and possibilities uh, in front of you. The anxiety disorders and stress levels uh, are the highest that they are in any demographic in this world. Amongst you right now, life is complicated. James is acknowledging life is complicated. I would add to that that life for you is incredibly complicated. But he goes on to acknowledge that, secondly, the uncertainty of life. He says this. He says, the reality is you have no idea. You have no idea. You make your plans. You know, Milton was a great example of this. I mean, he left home at 19 with all these great dreams. He went and got a job, which is fantastic. The, the company went out of business. He started his own business, which was great, but he didn't make any money, and so it was horrible. And, and then somebody came along, these Egyptians came along to, to start the company up again, which really set him on the path until some 
11-year-old girl wrote a letter to the president and threw his fortunes completely in the garbage. And then he starts this game. I mean, it was up and down, up and down, up and down. There was all this incredible uncertainty that goes on. And you're facing the same, in fact, increasing uncertainty. And then James says there's a third dynamic, and it's just the brevity of life. You are like a mist that appears one moment and then vanishes another. Your life is a limited commodity. I often say it in this phrase, you have your one and only life. That's all you get. You've got one and only life to live. It's a limited commodity. Your life is precious. Your life is rare. Your life goes by way too quickly. So you had better make sure that you are making the best choices possible. And right now, I hope that you're saying, gee, what, what are you saying? Okay, I get it, I get it, I get that, that life is complex, I get that life is uncertain, I get that the life is brief and precious, but how in the world does that help me to make good decisions? Because I don't want to make the wrong decisions about what school to go to, or what classes to take, or what course load to take, or, or what job to take, what career to take. My goodness, I don't want to marry the wrong person. I, maybe I'm not even going to get married. I want to, I, how am I supposed to make a decision whether I should rent or, or whether I should buy a house, whether I should get married or not get married, who I should get married to? How does this help me to make any of those decisions? And I want to say that those people who read the back of the box, they say, well, we're just going to make our own plans and do what we want. Here's what we're going to do, and it's great. And James says, no, 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 no. Life is way too complex. Life is way too uncertain. Life is way too brief and way too precious. So he goes on in verse 15, and he says this. In verse 15, he says, It would be best to say, if it is the Lord's will and we live long enough, we hope to do this project or to pursue that dream. But your current speech indicates you have an arrogance because you don't acknowledge who God is. You know what I hear him saying when he, when he says this? I hear him saying, plan dream and pursue to your heart's delight. I think you have a tremendous amount of freedom that God is giving you to plan and to pursue and to, to dream. And in fact, if we kind of take this apart a little bit, I, the first point I would take out of this is this. There isn't one pre prearranged plan uh, set out for you that you have to try and dis to, to discover. There isn't just one path for you, so you don't have to worry, oh my goodness, what happens if I miss it? Because there isn't just one singular path. I think God gives you a tremendous amount of freedom. In fact, if you look in this passage, he, he doesn't say, look it, I want you to fast. I want you to pray. I want you to get down on your knees. I want you to get a life coach. I want you to get a counselor, because heaven forbid you should ever make a wrong decision. And there's only one path exactly who you should marry, what you should buy, where you should go, go to work. There's only one path. You shouldn't miss it. And if you miss it, you're screwed. He doesn't say that. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, make your plans. Make your plans. You know, go have fun. Like, you have tremendous amounts of freedom. Go make those plans. Go make those plans. Obey God's commands along the way. Uh, live in alignment with God. You know, live with one knee bent to God all the time, saying, God, I'm, I'm kneeling this before you. But go have some fun. You have a tremendous amount of freedom. You want to own a restaurant? You want to be a heavy-duty diesel mechanic? You want to be a, you know, a brain surgeon? Go try your hand at brain surgery. I mean, that's awesome if you can do that. Uh, you want to be a teacher. You want to be an artist. You want to be a mom. You want to be a dad. You want to be a musician, a, a furniture builder, a computer designer, um, you know, a nanny, a neurosurgeon, a social worker, a pastor. Go for it. Go follow your heart and go follow what, what you sense God would, has created you to be. But you've got some flexibility in this. It's not like you are just tied into this one simple plan. But here's the problem. 
Studies have shown recently that people who have too many choices in front of them, they're absolutely paralyzed to make any of those choices. In fact, there's a study that, that went to the supermarket that had 250 different kinds of jam. And so they put 250 kinds of jam in front of people and said, choose one. And people had an incredibly difficult time choosing which of the 250 kinds of jam they wanted. And then when they did choose it, they found that those people had high levels of dissatisfaction and, and doubt about the fact that they probably chose the wrong kind because there's 249 out of the kinds that they didn't choose. However, when they put five different choices of jam in front of people, those people found it much easier to choose and they registered a way higher satisfaction because they felt like they had made a good choice. Well, you're living in a world today where you've got 250,000 kinds of jam on 100,000 different kinds of bread to be paired up with 300,000 different kinds of peanut butter. It is incredibly complex. And so many of you, you just end up paralyzed. Like, what should I do? I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss what God's plan or will for my life is. And I think you've got to begin to narrow those things down. And, and God is saying, listen, I've made you to just go and enjoy this life. Do it in obedience to my word. Do it in a way that's in alignment and submission to, to what you know to be my will. But then go have some fun and, and go and figure this out. You know, my wife, Carolyn, she's here tonight. And uh, she's my one and only. And I will tell her often, she is the only woman in the world for me. The only woman in the world for me. And, uh, and I mean that. However, she also knows that I have the belief that I could have married any one of 10,000 other women and had a great life. Not that there were 10,000 other women lined up or that I had all those options because I didn't actually have that many options. Uh, but let's flip this around. Carolyn could have easily married any one of 10,000 other guys and had a fantastic life, being compatible with them, had, had just great kids, had an amazing experience, fantastic. I, I believe that there wasn't just one marker. And, and see, the, the problem with when we think that, that there's just this one path that we have to find, that, that this is the match made in heaven for a spouse, this is the match made in heaven for a career, the problem is that when the brown stuff hits the fan, and it will hit the fan, believe me, you're going to sit there and go, oh, my goodness, I must have made the wrong choice. And if I made the wrong choice and missed the, the right person, then I've got to get rid of this job. I've got to get rid of this person. I've got to get rid of this spouse. And I've got to go find another spouse that's the right one because I obviously married the wrong one. Can I, newsflash, you are going to marry. If you get married, you are going to marry the wrong person, guaranteed. 100%. You are, gonna, you are going to get into the wrong career. You're going to get into the wrong job. Do you, do you have any idea how many times I have gone home after a weekend and confess to Carol, I'm in the wrong career. I should be doing something else. I, I'm living in the wrong city. I'm in the wrong place. I, I just, you know, because that's the emotion, right? And you don't think we've had our issues? We've had our issues, let me, let me tell you. And there have been times when we sat there and went, oh my goodness, is, did I really marry the right person? Really. And you know what? When you think that, that there's one path, it's so easy to get off of that path. But the key is not finding that perfect person because that perfect person does not exist. The key is building a fantastic marriage with the one you choose. Building a fantastic marriage with the one you choose. Building a fantastic career with, with the career that you get into. Not just always wondering if you missed out on this plan. God, I believe he's saying in this, this whole passage, I think he's saying, listen, you, you have freedom. You make your plans. Make your plans and, and go out and have some fun. 
Listen, just really quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20. I love this. Uh, so Paul's dealing with all these people that are coming to him saying, I married the wrong person. I shouldn't have got married. I'm in the wrong job. I shouldn't be. In order to really follow God wholeheartedly, I got to get out of this marriage. I got to get out of this job. I got to put this marriage on hold. And you know what he says? 1 Corinthians 7, 20, he says this. Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Look at that word, remain. Now, that doesn't mean if you're in a relationship, you can't, you know, stop the relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Or if you're, you know, wanting to switch majors, that you shouldn't switch majors. Or that you, uh, you can't change careers. Or, or if you're single, that you can't, you know, move on to get married or, or any of those things. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is this. He says, stop thinking that you would have a really great life if you could only change your circumstances, because he says, you know what? Make your circumstances, whatever they are, live your faith out in the midst of your circumstances. You know what? Whatever your marriage is, whatever your relationship is, whatever your career is, in fact, I love how the voice says it. It says this, it's important for all people to live out faith in the circumstance they know. In the circumstance they know. So we have determined that we are going to make a fantastic marriage. It's taken 32 years so far, and we're not done yet. But we don't have eyes for anybody else. There's no other options for us. Not because there aren't other options, because there's a ton of other options. But we've said, you're my one and only. I am so committed to you. I'm so committed to you, and we're going to make a fantastic life. There is no prearranged life. Listen, really quickly, number two, include God in all of your plans and pursuits. The whole point that James is making is this. He says, your current speech indicates an arrogance that does not acknowledge the one who's in control of the universe, and that leads to all sorts of sin. The problem James has is this big talking, big future people is, is that they've left God out of the process. They've left God out. And they've said, you know what, I'm just going to go out and do it on my own. You know, I love to buy junk. So last week online on eBay, I bought a motorbike, a 1987 a Goldwing motorbike. It's down in Wisconsin, 12 hours away. I'm going to go drive down there and get it next weekend. And I thought, you know what, while I'm driving down there, this place also sells old junky sailboats. I should buy a sailboat. Because you know, why, why just bring a motorbike back with my truck? I, I might as well bring a sailboat back as well. So I told my, in my excitement, I shared my idea with Carol, and she said, that's a dumb idea. Like, I said, don't do it. And I said, no, 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 I, I'm free to do this. God said, make your plans. You're making your pursuits. Like, this is fantastic. I get to do whatever I want. And she said, it's a bad idea. And so the next few days, I actually prayed about it. I, was, I could feel it. I could taste it. I saw this sailboat. It was going to be fantastic. It was 800 bucks. I mean, it was going to be a deal. I was going to make money off of it. And I thought, you know what, I should put this into practice. So I said, God, what do you think of this? I know you said I get to have freedom and, and pursuits and dreams and whatever, but can you give me some guidance on this? You know what I think I heard? I think what I heard was, you know what, you're feeding your ADD, OCD personality stuff by just gaining more stuff. Be, be content with the motorbike. Exercise contentment. Don't, don't get distracted by, by adding too much stuff. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to suggest to you that you, you just sort of reel that in. And you know what? I went back and said, I'm not getting the, the sailboat. I, I don't even want to get the sailboat anymore. But you, you know where that came out of was a conversation with God. An intimate walking beside God and just having a conversation as friends and him uh, leading us, leading me along. You know, um, lots of times we don't include God in our plans. And when we don't include God in our plans... Uh, and we say, you know what, I'm just going to be the boss of my own life for this season. I'm just going to be my own boss. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to do whatever I want. You know what, it doesn't always turn out all that great. My name's Amy. I'm 26, and I'm a grade 6 teacher. 
I grew up in a very loving home and in a home where um, faith was super important. Both of my parents are pastors at Riverwood, and so Riverwood was a huge part of my life growing up. We spent a lot of time here. I went to university right after high school because I knew that I wanted to be a teacher. I knew what program I wanted to be in. I did three years to do my Bachelor of Arts, and then after that I took a break from university. I just felt like I wanted to get out of school and I wanted to do some traveling. So I was 21 when I went to Africa, and it wasn't with a Christian organization. I just went on my own. And with that first little bit of independence, I took it and I ran with it. And that's where a lot of the values that my parents had instilled in me, um, I sort of threw those to the side and sort of dived into the party scene. Uh, I met a guy while I was there and we started a relationship. Very quickly it turned into a very physical relationship with, with some emotional, an emotional side to it too, but um, at this point I still had in my head that I wasn't having sex until I was married, um, but I did get as close to that line as I possibly could without actually crossing it. Then a year later we maintained contact and um, a year later I went to visit him in England and I stayed with him there and I didn't know if we were going to sleep together or not, I didn't have that decision in my mind made up, um, but I think that because I didn't have a firm standard, I uh, just kind of went along with what he wanted, and so we did end up sleeping together, and the effects of that now, it's shocking to me that it still, that it still affects me. A big turning point for me was going to the Hillsong Conference in New York, and before, for the two or two and a half years before that, I wasn't faith, I didn't care about faith. I even at one point told my parents I didn't want to be a Christian anymore. And when a few of my friends said that they wanted to go to the Hillsong Conference, I was like, oh, it'll be great to go to New York, but I don't really care about the conference, but they're going, so I might as well go. And then while I was there, Jesus just got a hold of my heart again. And um, thank God that he did, because I don't know what would have happened in my life had he not but that was really the turning point for me and in realizing that I wanted faith to be an important or like the most important part of my life I had to deal with the things that had happened in the three years or two years prior when it came to having to process the fact that I had slept with somebody outside of marriage uh, there it, I was filled with shame about that and filled with regret and not only of the action, but of knowing that I was far enough from God that I let something that used to be such an important standard in my life just fall away, and that I didn't hold true to that. Looking back on it, I just skimmed the surface of processing, and I asked for forgiveness and thought, okay, I'm fine now, I'm, I'm healed from this. And it wasn't until the spring of this past year when I started a new relationship that all of those feelings seemed to resurface and seemed to come back and I had to redeal with everything. Though I had asked for forgiveness, I think I didn't really believe that God's grace covered this one, which is a lie from the devil because it does. And a part of that was understanding that God's grace covers it and I also needed to have grace for myself in this and realize that even though I had made a mistake, I was still okay and I was still whole. 
I think now, sitting four and a half years later and looking back on it, I feel like had I been more future focused in that moment instead of focused on the moment of what I wanted with this guy and what I desired uh, and how I wanted to be close with him, had I been thinking more about the future, I probably would have made a different decision. And while I would never, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, the, the pain or the shame that comes with this, I feel like I also was taught a really beautiful lesson on what grace is. There's a line in um, Who You Say I Am by Hillsong and uh, where it says, who the sun sets free is free indeed. And there have been so many times because the enemy still uses this. As much as I feel like I've moved forward from it and I've been forgiven and that I've taken all these steps of healing, the enemy as recent as last weekend was using this to shame me and to guilt me or, or to add insecurity into my life. And the devil does not want us to be free. So while God is saying, you're free, I've set you free, the devil wants to keep those chains on us and keep us shackled to this shame. And so I think reminding ourselves that God is more powerful than that and who the sun sets free is free indeed. There's no question about it. That is one of the most one of the most beautiful pictures of grace, I think. Your future choices and the choices you're making right now will one day be your past. And if you don't solidify those choices today, when you get in those situations, Amy's shared a very powerful story of what happens. And she has been working so hard at unraveling all that past stuff. And I got to tell you, I am so proud of my baby girl. So if you have a similar choice that you have made in life, just hear this. There is redemption. There is forgiveness. There is a washing clean in the blood of the Lamb. And just the, what Jesus does, he just comes and he, he showers us clean. Showers you clean, whiter than snow, it says. And you've got a brand new start. You know, what, what should be a disgrace and should be, you know, especially for a lead pastor, their daughter, come on. You know what? It's not. It's not. It's like, that's my baby girl. And she's, she's a dolphin, not a, not, a, not a jellyfish floating along with culture. She's swimming across the culture right now. And she's willing to take a stand for what is right and what Jesus has called her to. Last, real quick, sign every plan you make with the initials DV. You know, some of you, I've noticed, are into tattoos. And, uh, you know, I, I always get people asking me, would you ever get a tattoo? Would you ever get a tattoo? Uh, you know, and, and I'm probably not going to get a shark or a skull or, you know, a snake or a, a flower, you know. I mean, I could probably, if I was to get anything, I really like those uh, biometric kind of rip the skin open kind of tattoos. I, I think those are like super cool. And I bet you I could pull off the eyes on the back of the head thing because I think I, I got the right uh, haircut for that one. I think I could do really well with that. But, but I'm probably not going to ever get any of those tattoos. But I've been thinking lately, I think I would get a tattoo. I think it was a tattoo that I would get, and it would probably be very small, and it would be two initials, and it would be the initials D and V. And the reason I would get those initials tattooed on me, and may one day, 
Uh, first of all, because it's very uncommon. It's not like it's all over the internet and everybody's doing it. Secondly, it's incredibly biblical, and it comes out of this passage. It's James chapter 4, verse 13. I love it. Uh, thirdly, um, it, you know, it would, I, I would hope that it would be the sort of tattoo that I would be proud of and would guide my life right until the day I die. And, and then fourthly, it would serve to remind me every single day to live my life DV. And DV comes out of some old, old signatures two and three hundred years ago where Christ followers would sign their letters and write in their letters or sign their names with the initials D and V. And those initials mean Deo Volente. Deo Volente. They would put it all over the place. They'd say, this is my name, and this is what I'm planning on doing. I'm planning to come to you, Deo Volente. I'm planning on starting this business. I'm planning on getting married. I'm planning on having this career, Deo Volente. Deo Volente means God willing. God willing. I, I am living my life one knee knelt down to God, and everything I do is submitted to Him. God willing, this is what's going to happen. And this is what James is telling us. He's saying, listen, you want to grow up? As you grow up, realize that the, the, the Milton Bradley game of life is just a fairy tale. That's not the real life. Life is way too complex. It's way too confusing. It's way too brief and precious. And you've got to be making the right choices. But as you make the right choices, have a blast. You've got so much freedom. But as you do that, make sure that everything you do is in line with God's will. Everything you do is in line with God's will. And when you mess up and go outside of His will, receive His forgiveness. Receive His cleansing. And realize that you are an amazing child of God.